Cynthia and I chatted a lot together when we were in India. So when she heard that I was going to Greece with Donovan and um, Magic Alex, she asked if she could come along too. But when we took her home, when we came into the house, that's where John and Yoko were. It was, it was shocking. But also, what do you do? Hi, my name is Chris Kosach. I created this podcast, Text, Prose, and Rock and Roll, to highlight music in the printed form, a music club dedicated to music biographies, autobiographies, and stories from the road. Jenny Boyd, the British model and Beatle employee turned PhD, witnessed far more than one infamous affair over the course of her incredible life. Like her sister Patty, Jenny inspired popular songs, married rock royalty, and traversed the globe too many times to count. Now, Dr. Jenny Boyd-Levitt has documented her fascinating story in a new memoir, Jennifer Juniper, A Journey Beyond the Muse. Jenny sat down with me to discuss how she observed firsthand some of the most memorable moments in music history. You begin the book with a quote by your then brother-in-law, George Harrison, where he said, just be yourself. And I want to get to the meat of the book shortly, but in the very, very end of the book, you come back to that. You found yourself. You are yourself. You're just being yourself. It comes full circle. And my question is, uh, was that intentional in the book? <laughs> no. No, it wasn't. Um, my, I've always known and remembered George saying those very words to me because when I was writing the chapter about India and um, when we drove back from Bang Bangor, where we'd gone in Wales to have our um, be initiated and get our mantras, and that's when he says it, when I'm just about to get out of the car, would you like to come to India? Well, the thing is, I'd always, I'd had this dream of India ever since I'd had my own, what I call spiritual awakening. And um, mm -hmm. it, to, to be asked to go to India and with them, not sort of going just by myself when I got older kind of thing, um, it was too much. And I kept, all I could say was, how can I ever thank you? And he said, just be yourself. And I always remembered that because it was so powerful in many ways in the fact that, you know, that very moment when I find out you're being given the greatest gift, you're going to be given the greatest gift you've ever wanted. And that was to go to India. So it wasn't until I'd actually pretty much finished mm -hmm. the book that, and I found my voice and realizing that, what I can say to everybody and I say to myself, the thing that we can do is just be ourselves. And I think it's similar mm -hmm. because I'd written this book about uh, musicians and the creative process before that, you know, that it's not only rock and roll. And it's funny because I was thinking the other day, I'm saying exactly the same thing there. It's about listening to that still voice within. You know, I spoke to my sister last night and I, I ran a couple of questions past her and I said, do I tell her that George Harrison was my favorite Beatle? No. And she said, it doesn't matter. But the truth is that he really was. And for the same reasons that you're mentioning, he's just, in my opinion, he was the most soulful of them all. And your book is very soulful and very grounded, I found, um, throughout. However, 
there's a lot of color <laughs> as well. Yeah. So um, I think we should, let's talk about uh, uh, the Beatles and Beatlemania and experiencing that because, wow, what a time in history that you saw firsthand uh, from the inside out and yet as an observer, as you say. Tell me what that experience was like being inside the circle of Beatlemania. Well, it's funny because I was very young. I was still very young then. So, you know, when I first met George, I think I must have been about 15 or 16, but I was very aware of being in the center of that crazy Beatlemania when we got on the train at Euston Station to go to Bangor. And there were so many, there was just so many crowds and crowds of these kids all screaming and we were trying to make our way through to get on the train. I was very conscious of it then. And also, obviously, when we arrived in Bangor, um, all, all the kids and uh, all the people doing exactly the same thing. And it didn't affect me in as much as like, oh, this is fun or anything like that. It was much more just keep walking and we got to, got to get from A to B. And that's mm -hmm. all it felt like because I could feel the mass of hysteria and the crowds and um, and so it was that it it wasn't uh, thinking well this is you know really amazing, um, but mm -hmm. when we were in India of course there wasn't that wasn't there and so they could just be themselves as individuals and because we had our own bungalow um, which was you know different rooms it was all one one level and um, we had that to ourselves and so. When I'd sit on the roof with George and Paul and John and they had their guitars and singing and making up songs, it was, um, you, I, I didn't want to interrupt because they were, you just get the feeling that when they were together, they were so linked in and they were being creative and they were doing their stuff. And so mm -hmm. it was more like feeling very peaceful and in a way really honored as I would any lot of pe people who are being creative or musicians doing their thing. It's lovely just listening and being an observer and maybe, you know, painting your hands with henna or doing whatever you do, just sitting there in the sun. So there was, mm -hmm. wasn't that feeling of I'm with the Beatles. You were just with a group of people yeah. learning. And growing. Yeah. Uh, you talk in the book about the Maharashi and you were a little skeptical. You're not the only one. Uh, and also at this time, things got a little strange and uh, everyone kind of went their own way. Do you think because Brian Epstein died on the eve before you all went to India and the Maharashi suggested that they do not grieve, but they rather just let it go? In other words, in a way, stifle your feelings. Do you think that this could have been partly responsible for the Beatles breaking up the fact that they were all kind of going on their own spiritual paths and away from each other? We actually went to India probably like two, three months after we got our mantra. So they okay. had time to be doing their meditation, but, um, but also... I agree with you that when he was told, don't, you know, don't grieve, just, um, you know, be happy for him. And my heart just went out to them because, you know, how can one not? And I'm sure in their own ways they did. You couldn't help it. But my feeling is when we were all in India, 
and they had Maharishi as their guru, and um, and he was just everything. And he obviously filled that empty hole that Brian has mm-hmm. left behind. That is my feeling. And so when Maharishi turned out to be not who they thought he was, and they there was a huge feeling of betrayal. And my feeling was that at that time, that suddenly that empty hole, or maybe it's on reflection, maybe that empty hole of Brian not being there, maybe that became more apparent when this person who had taken his place was just not, they couldn't trust him. And I I don't know whether it was the, the beginning of the end, but I think possibly... It was because suddenly they were individuals. They weren't the Beatles, and especially in India. They weren't the Beatles. They were their individual selves. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe. and But also I wonder whether it's part of evolution. It's part of as you get older, things that used to be great when you were a little bit younger, you grow out of and you find who you right. are. And maybe that's all happened at the same time, a combination of all those things. Right. This is slightly touchy, but is it true that you were with Cynthia Lennon when she walked in on John and Yoko? Yeah. Yeah, we'd been, I'd been with Cynthia because Cynthia and I chatted a lot together when we were in India and I knew that things were a little bit difficult with John and, you know, she wasn't feeling as connected and, um, just maybe I don't think she had any kind of sense of anything going on, but she was, you know, aware that it wasn't how it should be. And so when she yeah. heard that I was going to Greece with Donovan and um, Magic Alex, she asked if she could come along too. And she asked John, and John said he thought it was a great idea. So she came with us. But when we took her home, when um, Alex and I drove her home, came into the house, that's where John and Yoko were. And I, it was, it was shocking, but also what do you do, you know? And so so I guess Yoko must have just left the house because next thing was that we were in the kitchen and John was uh, on this chaise long, you know, like a little sofa thing with his feet up and, uh, and, um, you know, with uh, bare feet. And I was standing quite near him there. And even though there was this terrible silence in the room, in the kitchen, he was like a naughty boy who had been caught out by his mother kind of feeling. He wiggled his toes and saying, hello, Jenny, you know, in a squeaky voice. So it was just like, he was like being very childlike. And that's it, as if he'd been caught out. But he didn't, there was no feeling of remorse in any way. Talk about awkward. So let's fast forward. You you go back to England, you and Mick get married. You're only 21, right? And there was a, you're still communal living with many friends. But at some point, the band Fleetwood Mac decides to move to LA. And I want to talk about that period, chapter seven in particular, because this is what most people think of when they think of the excess of rock and roll. <laughs> so many things happened to you. It's just, it broke my heart. I needed Kleenex in chapter seven. So let's talk a little bit about something that they called 
the Brain Damage Club. What is the Brain Damage Club? The Brain Damage Club was started by um, John Mayer. Eric was playing with him and you know, all, the, all the great guitarists played with him. Then he moved to L.A. and he got his house up in Laurel Canyon and he called it the Brain okay. Damage Club. And, um, and so John uh, McVie and Chris McVie and our friend Sandra Bygon, when we moved over to L.A., they moved into John Mayer's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think John must have been away for a while. And just everywhere, there was this big bar of every single bottle of whatever alcohol you needed. And, um, and I think there was a place where you could watch movies. And um, it was just, uh, they just called it the Brain Damage Club because you can imagine the kind of rock and roll parties that want, went on in there. And, uh, and so that's where John and Chris and um, Sandra lived when we first arrived there, whereas Mick and I had our children who were still very young. Uh, I think mm-hmm. uh, Lucy was probably one, and uh, or just over one, and uh, Amelia was three. So we were having to kind of look after them. And then one night when uh, I managed to find a babysitter, and we went to go and visit John and Chris and um, Sandra, Mick and I, and we all swam in the pool and started to feel very Californian. And then we started taking all our <laughs> bathing suits off, and then we were all in the nude except for Chris, she undid her top of her bikini, but she couldn't quite let it go. So it would float along with her, you know. <laughs> and then John would be running down the steps, stark naked. And um, John, who is usually very sort of, you know, reserved. And it was we all suddenly became very Californian. And there was this guy there who always lived there, I think. He was a friend of John Mayer's called Kansas. And he would walk around the pool with just his cowboy hat on and nothing else, telling, showing Chris, Sandra, and I how to, um, how to dive. <laughs> and and uh, so that was our introduction to California. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's also a lot of cocaine and alcohol in this chapter. <laughs> there's a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, but, but, but what an interesting time, especially now that you look back with uh, a cycle, a, a a professional clinical psychological uh, psychology degree you're able to look back on this period do you think the zeitgeist I mean, it was a perfect storm really for all of these things to happen in this wild 70s and the indulgences of the time but uh, the world has changed an awful lot do, do you think that that could ever be recreated do you think that that time has come and gone or do you think it's possible that that a period like that could happen again? I don't know. With- I think it was a time, and I don't think it can be repeated. It's like the 60s. You know, that can't mm-hmm. be repeated. It was a particular time in history when everything came together to create that. And I don't think, yeah. you know, because the 70s with us all in L.A., and, uh, you know, it came from, a lot of it came from the 60s. But what was the sadness about it, I think, is that all the idealism that we had in the 60s, or most of us, that all went by the, by the wayside. And suddenly it seemed all about ambition and making money and how you can be the best. And, you know, there was a lot mm-hmm. of creativity because that was still there. But there was a lot of, um, it was hardened in a way, I think. I think it was very yeah. much, uh, you know, having to get the record out uh, for uh, 
the studio need, it needed to be finished at a certain time. And so, of course, that's how cocaine started with this um, mm -hmm. need to have things done and ready. But, of course, yes, they could stay up all night, but they'd listen to what they'd been doing and often they'd have to redo the whole thing again. Right, right. So it was, it was really a, a functional drug usage in a way. To begin More with. than it was, uh, yeah. Yeah. And for you, though, substance was a means of coming out of your shell as well, because there were a lot of people around, a lot of parties, a lot of nudity, <laughs> um, but, uh, but there were a lot of people, and you were quite shy. Talk to me a little bit about being alone in a crowd of many. Because you mentioned that a few times in the book, and I find that really fascinating. You certainly aren't alone. A lot of people feel that way. It, to some extent, I've felt like that in the music industry, um, uh, just on the sidelines as a as a broadcaster. But it, it's it's an interesting thing. You're in the center of it all, and yet you're alone. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, because you're alone because you're there because you happen to be married to one of the main people who's there. So, yes, we all did, it did feel like a family because we were all going through the same kind of stuff. But I, I believe I was, I was very shy and introverted, but there was another part that just loved the music and loved to dance and wished I could sort of really just be that person the whole time rather than this kind of introverted, spiritual-seeking person. So it almost felt as if I had two completely different parts of me that was sort of fight for each other. And, um, and, that, and that's why, to begin with, I learned, well, if I start drinking, then I can kind of come out of myself, and I can actually be quite funny. And I never thought of mm -hmm. that before. And I would feel like one of the crowd. But inside and at the end of the evening or when you're trying to go to sleep, you don't feel like one of the crowd. You know, you're there with yourself. And in a way, I would feel really remorseful that I couldn't just be myself without having to get completely out of it. But it was tricky, though, and maybe I was hard on myself because everybody was drinking and taking Coke and doing right, that. So, right, You know, I would have other times when I'd be with the children at home and they would be on the road, say, and I would just have my chamomile tea and my poems to write and, and listen to classical music. And I loved that. That felt more like me. And it took me a long time to actually realize about being true to yourself. What really feels like you? Mm -hmm. uh, so perhaps these were the, the beginnings of you finding yourself in, during this period, really, by being alone. So maybe being alone was a gift. Well, it was. It was painful, though. It was painful mm -hmm. being in the situation that I was in because there was another part that really was a bit of an extrovert and loved all of this and loved the music mm -hmm. and, you know, loved getting wasted uh, or you know, the music would sound even better or dancing or, you know, it was like party, party, party. But there would always come those times where and, – and the thing is, because I wasn't with it all the time and because obviously we had the children, I always had to get up early with them and be there as a mom – 
um, it was different for me. So I was like a part-time party girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You probably grounded everyone around you and you probably don't even know it. But, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to be opining here, but my takeaway was that, uh, that, that you grounded everyone else. You brought them back to reality, but, uh, but it didn't always turn out for you. And with Mick, unfortunately, it didn't work out. And, uh, you went on a journey and then you tried to make things work out. You actually married him twice, (laughs) which I find fascinating <laughs> who does that so you escaped you successfully escaped and you came back yeah. so a part of you did did of course you did it for the children but you is am i safe to say that you missed that lifestyle to some extent no it wasn't the lifestyle more than anything and this was something from way back you know even as a child because we, i had such a disruptive childhood and even when Mick and mm-hmm. I were together before we had any children, and I remember, I think we talked about, I think when I first found out I was pregnant, and I remember being in tears and just saying, let's never separate. Let's never get divorced. And that was my main thing. I never, never wanted to be divorced. And so it was almost as if I was obsessed with even this crazy stuff, I would keep going back for more. And in a way, I think Mick had this feeling like we did have a connection, but it was so hard mm-hmm. trying to find the person behind all the drugs and the, you know, alcohol and the, you know, and of course there was another side of me that was really proud of him and I'm happy that he was successful. But it was, um, you know, it, it was something that I just couldn't let go of. And when I thought I'd almost mm-hmm. let go of it, he would then come on, you know. So it was a sort of um, dance that we did together. Yeah, you d- you really did. And cut to the present. You've settled into a, a peaceful spot, um, clearly, which is which is wonderful. Um, all right. So moving on, it doesn't work out again, and you meet uh, Ian Wallace again. <laughs> you go back to a drummer. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but tell me, uh, you're on your honeymoon with Ian, and that that didn't end too well. I won't spend too much time on this. But what fascinates me is that story of your awakening when you almost died in Hawaii. Can you tell that story, please, yes. in the ocean? we were on our honeymoon, and um, John McBee said we could stay at his house on Maui. And um, so Ian and I went along, and I'd, in a way I'd swapped one drama for another, It was sort of like the rebound kind of feel to it. But um, anyway, he decided that he wanted drugs and we didn't have any. And so he called a couple of um, good friends of ours. And um, and so we we all took this um, mushroom, magic mushroom, synthetic, you know, the pill. We're sitting on the Mm -hmm. beach and suddenly, you know, we're all laughing our heads off and I become very self-conscious because people seem to be looking at us. And so I suggest that we all go out and go into the ocean, go into the sea. And uh, I'd always been a little scared of the sea ever since I was a kid. But anyway, put on, uh, you know, everyone puts on their masks and snorkel and starts swimming out, way out to sea. And um, I put on my mask, but but I dropped my snorkel. And so while I'm out trying to catch up with them, and I'm pretty far out, I uh, start to get um, mesmerized 
by all the wonderful things that are going on underneath the sea and the waves and all the different little fishes and stuff. And uh, then I think I can breathe underwater because I am so out of my mind. I don't know what I'm doing or where I am. And I'm way out at sea. And I don't put my head up anymore because I think I can't anymore. Um, I I know I can breathe underwater. And I think I'm breathing underwater and then I'm choking and coughing and, you know, and all my fear of the sea comes up from childhood and I'm flailing. And then when I kind of get myself back together again, I think I've got to, I've got to get back to the shore before this happens again. So I was aware enough to have a sort of lucid moment knowing I was going to get, you know, have another wave of being out of it. And I do get back to the shore and I'm shivering because I realized how close that was. And it was after that. And I remember I was chatting with, um, with Bonnie Raid and she was talking about these, I think it, whether it was Rescue Remedy or one of those um, um, alternative uh, things that she was taking. And I remembered I always mm-hmm. had fascination with alternative um, health, homeopathy, and ever since I could remember But at the same time, it made me realize I was ready to give back to life. It was as if I'd been given another chance, a wake-up call, basically. And that was my start of going to college and, you know. I've been accumulating questions and looking and searching for someone exactly like you for years to answer some of these questions for me. Oh. The psychology of a rock star. It is a fascinating subject. Uh, it is the stuff of dissertations. It was your dissertation when you got your PhD. You know, we talk about emotions. You, you talk in the book, Mick wasn't terribly emotive. Uh, George Harrison has said in interviews that he felt responsible for losing Patty. Uh, do you think that music, and you wrote an entire book and then republished it about musicians and creativity. Um, do you believe that musicians emote through their music and that's why perhaps their relationships don't always work out because they, they communicate in an entirely different way than the rest of the world might? Yes, I do. I think music has its own language and, um, you know, that we can't come in on. So when I was talking about us sitting in India, you know, on the roof of the bungalow with the with the Beatles, it's like you can't come in on that because they have their own language and it's more than just verbally. It's it's the sounds that they're making, and I think that um, that's I always felt like that with Fleetwood Mac is that you could never get in there because their connection mm-hmm. was a different language that they spoke. Were you married to your current husband? When you got your no, PhD. I was still married to Ian Wallace when I got my PhD. I was always thought, well, yes, if you're with um, husband, you must be going out on the road with him. And he'd go out with all these great musicians. And then actually, this, when I decided to go to college, that was such a big step for me because it was the first time I had done something for myself. And to actually say, no, sorry, I can't go on the road. I've got a class today or I've got three classes today. It was really, really tough, I can't tell you. But once I started, Mm -hmm. and it was almost like, gosh, I have a right. I have a right to do what I want to do for myself. And that was so big. It's liberating. It's liberating. You had your own schedule. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You continued on this journey 
and became an addiction specialist. I actually started Sierra Tucson the last year I was in LA. So I'd finished my okay, okay. book. My book had come out. Simon Schuster published that one. And I did. Um, I uh, then thought, well, I've got to get a job now. And so a friend of mine said, well, they're looking for marketing people at Sierra Tucson, but you've got to have a master's level degree. And I did then. And so um, that's how I went there and I got the job. And I had to go through everything that somebody who needs to go there for some kind of addiction has to go through. So I had to go through all the different groups to try that out, the family program, you know, obviously over a period of like a few days. And um, and it was really interesting. And I'd go to all the lectures. And so because I was starting to question my own self and was I an alcoholic, um, it was wonderful for me because I really then found out an awful lot about alcoholism, but I also found out about codependency. You know, when you need to have the approval mm -hmm. of other people so that you can feel okay about yourself, you know. So there was a lot I learned about that. But that was an, um, a year before I went to England, and that's how I went to England, because I asked them if I could actually take this program to England, because I wanted to share it with my home country, uh, what I had learned from going and being part of Sierra Tucson. Yes, yes, yeah. and the stoic nature of British culture would say, keep it all in, don't share it. Yeah. So it was a wild idea for you yeah. to take that to London. In America at that time, we're talking sort of 20-something years ago now, um, I found that, you know, I got into the therapy world and they just seemed much more dynamic than what was going on in England. And especially in the treatment centers, it was very old-fashioned and they would come from the mindset of, well, we've done it like this all our lives. Why should we change? So what I brought, and then I went to, and then I started working for Cottonwood Day Tucson, um, and so for many, many years. And so I would bring the family program over to England, and uh, the therapist over, and the psychiatrist over to talk to the psychiatrist in England. So I was, I kind of wanted what they'd got in the states, what they'd got in Arizona in particular, to come to England and show these people uh, at the different treatment centers. They don't have to be in competition with each other. Everybody can be there for each other, and nobody had thought like that before. So it was, it was very, it was, it was great. You know, it really worked very well. All these musicians that you've been around all your life, from the Beatles and Fleetwood Mac, uh, King Crimson, uh, uh, Eric Clapton, all this music, Monterey Pop, you were there. What's your favorite type of music? What do you like? Oh, ooh, I love, I love soul. I love blues. I love, um, <laughs> I love music every day here because we're on, you know, lockdown, obviously. I make sure I dance every day, just me and the music. So whatever songs I can dance to, um, I, I love, I, I mean, to say I love all music is not true because I might come across something and think, ooh, that doesn't move me. I guess it's what moves me. Whether it's really, I mean, Nina Simone singing I Put a Spell on You just makes me want to weep, you know, or uh, just, uh, or that makes you want to dance, that um, just, just has something about it, something special. I'm giggling because my sister just won a bet. She said she's going to say Motown and anything she can dance to. That's yep. what my sister said. <laughs> so she won. 
we don't have time to get into your father, but suffice it to say, (laughs) it was not great. And you, again, come full circle with all of that. So as a parent yourself, I wanted to ask, uh, it sounds like you have a wonderful relationship with your daughter, uh, with both of your daughters, but they are daughters. They are girls. And having grown up around this scene, did they ever, there comes a time in any young person's life when they start to question their parents and their parents' choices, they see their parent as a human being and not as this authority figure. And I'm wondering if your daughter's knowing what they know about um, your openness with with, uh, Coke and the infidelity that was flying around and all the wild parties, did they ever question you on your choices? And if so, what did you tell them? Since they've been grown up, not not really, because they, I think because, you know, obviously I wasn't, I tried very hard not to let them know about um, the, the, I'd wait till they had gone to bed and, you know, sort of we'd have our party time then. But um, but obviously there is on some level an effect. But they they just think of it as that was that time, you know. They they have great friends mm-hmm. and their parents are probably my age and sort of had been part of that world as well. And it's like oh, you know, our mums. Um, so it's not it's not uh, anything <laughs> more than that, you know. They're very into their own world and their own life. And, but they're, and they're really supportive. You know, what's been amazing for me with both books and everything, me going back to school and, you know, the college when I did, they've always been incredibly supportive and um, about anything I do. So I guess, um, yeah, yes. I have a wonderful relationship. And with my grandchildren too, just uh, wonderful. Yes, I, I wanted to ask about them. Uh, Izzy and Wolf, what if they came to you? And said, "I I want to be a musician, or I'm I'm dating a musician." What's your advice to them? Well, say if Izzy did. Izzy's now fourteen; she'll be fifteen in July. I I would say, you know, just have something that is yours. Don't give it up, so that you can still be with whoever it is. But always make sure that you stay true to what it is, what your passion is. In other words, just be yourself. Just be yourself. My guest has been Dr. Jenny Boyd-Levitt, whose new memoir, Jennifer Juniper, A Journey Beyond the Muse, is now available online and wherever books are sold through Urbane Publications. We recommend the ebook version to begin reading right away. And that'll do it for track two of Text, Prose, and Rock and Roll. Be sure to join me next time for our Mother's Day special featuring Virginia Handling Grohl, mother of Foo Fighters frontman and Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl, on how to raise a rock star. That should be fun. All right, here come the liner notes. Text, Prose, and Rock and Roll was created, written, and executive produced by yours truly in association with GoTo Productions' Charlene Goto, producer. Special thanks this week goes to Dr. Jenny Boyd-Levitt, Sharon Kosach, and Matthew Smith. Original music by Mike Bowman. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you found this podcast or visit us at our website, textprosrockandroll.com and follow us on Instagram to be among the first to see who's coming up next time. For Text Pros and Rock and Roll, I'm Chris Kosach. Rock on. Rock on.